our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there are two quick things concerning this sermon, which starts in chapter 5 and ends in chapter 7 that I'd like to point out before we go any further. First, when Jesus preached this sermon, although he alluded to those who were not his disciples, he was primarily preaching to those who were his. This is a message to his people. This is a message to us. Secondly, it's important to understand that this is not a sermon on how to make it to heaven. It is not a works righteousness discourse, but rather a discourse on how those who belong to Christ should live relationally and otherwise while an assignment here on earth. It's in view of that fact that Jesus opens his sermon providing the identifying characteristics of those who are his. They are poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin. They are meek, that is strength under control. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. They are merciful, pure in heart, are peacemakers, and are subject to being persecuted and reviled. They are the salt of the earth. In the light of the world, who cannot for the sake and benefit of others afford to lose that saltiness or cease to shine that light. That is who they are. That's who we are or are becoming by the enabling power of God's spirit. They, we are recipients of God's grace. Those who, like all mankind, were justly deserving his wrath and under the weight of perfectly fulfilling every iota of his law. But the voice of grace rings out loudly in this sermon when we hear these words in chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He, Jesus, was going to and has fulfilled them on our behalf. So we are no longer under the weight of having to be perfect, but instead are called to walk with and in him who is. And it is to that end that we're given the instructions, comparisons, and contrast that we find between chapter 5 and uh, verse 17 and the verse we have before us this evening. In literary terms, it's called an inclusio, a pattern where a, wor a pair of words, statement, or themes serve as bookends to begin a literary unit. Here are the two words that should draw our attention uh, first in 517 and now in our verse are law, the words law and prophets. So with those two, that preliminary thought in mind, let's read our verse. It reads, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Again, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us now as we open your words, speak to our hearts, illumine our minds for the purpose of molding and shaping us into the image of our Lord, for the purpose of equipping us to do the works to which we've been called, to fulfill the purposes that you prepared for us before the foundation of this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I know that this verse is a bookend, is a bookend, is the bookend to the Christian's instructions concerning the law and the prophets. This as it relates to human 
relations. It starts with the word so, our verse does, which when translated from the Greek is more often translated as therefore, a word which when seen in scripture always ties that which came before with a narrative that a person is currently, that the person is currently reading. In this instance, our verse is tied to verse 11, which says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Summarily, Jesus points to the father's goodness, to his generosity as the basis for what we're exhorted to here in verse 12. And quite frankly, saints, that's the way it is with all things in the Christian life. We forgive because we are forgiven. We love because we are loved. And we pursue the well-being of those in our sphere of influence because we have a God who, a good shepherd, a God, a good shepherd who pursues, who never ceases to pursue our well-being. So now the question at hand and the one uh, that are being answered here, there's two questions and they're being answered here, is what, as ambassador of God's kingdom, how do we pursue the well-being of our neighbors? And why is it best achieved in the manner prescribed here in our text? That's two points in the form of two questions. So forgive me if I'm not being too very Presbyterian right now. So first, how do we pursue the well-being of our neighbors? Jesus says, whatever you wish they would do to you, do also to them. This exhortation, commonly known as the golden rule, carries with it a most obvious truth. That is generally speaking, and you know this about yourself, folks love themselves and will go to great lengths to preserve themselves to experience good and be provided with their needs, wants, and desires. No rational person in his or her right mind actively and knowingly seeks his or her own destruction. Instead, they seek that which is best for them, often even at the expense of others. In a recent sermon, I spoke at length about this condition, dubbing it the MMI condition, MMI being an acronym for me, myself, and I. Fact is, if we are experts at anything, if we are experts at anything, it's how to love self, promote self, and seek on behalf of self. So when you think about it, it's quite genius of Christ to provide this instruction which takes into account the core of the human psyche, self. It's a call for a move from that which is natural, the consideration of self, to that which is unnatural, the consideration of others on the same level of self. Here I think it's important to note that Jesus wasn't the first one, however, to come up with this exhortation, but the way he delivered it is somewhat unique. See if you can discern what I'm talking about here. The Jewish rabbi Hillel said, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to someone else. The book of Tobit in the Apocrypha teaches, what thou thyself hatest, to no man do. The Jewish scholars in Alexandria who translated the Septuagint, that is the Greek Old Testament, advised in a certain piece of correspondence 
as you wish that no evil befall you, but to be partaker of good things, so you should act on the same principle towards your subjects and offenders. Confucius thought, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. An ancient Greek king named Nicoclus wrote, do not do to others the things which make you angry when you experience them at the hands of other people. The Greek philosopher Epictetus said, what you avoid suffering yourself, do not inflict on others. And finally, the Stoics promoted the principle, what you do not want to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. So these sayings have been all over the entire earth, but did you discern or recognize the difference? In every one of those examples, in every case, the emphasis is negative. Whatever you don't want done to you, don't do to others. But here in our text, we see something completely different. We see that we are to seek for others the positive that we seek for ourselves. Also, the expressions we heard from those men all entailed actions that can be achieved without God. Do no harm, but you're not necessarily promoting. They consist of merely doing no harm and are not expressions of love, but rather of self-interest. They're still MMI. And that is where all the cultural ideologies of our day rest. All of them are secular in their orientation. All of them seek to push God out of the marketplace of ideas, and all of them then seek to accomplish things within our own power. But again, here Jesus calls us to a standard that cannot be consistently met without his enablement. Commenting on this, one scholar wrote, We sin because we are totally selfish, totally devoted to ourselves rather than to God and others. Unregenerate man can never come up to the standard of selfless love, the love that loves others as oneself and that treats others in the same way that one wants to be treated. Only Jesus gives the fullness of the truth, which encompasses both the negative and the positive. Now, you might remember that I started this sermon noting that verse 12 is connected to and is the reason implication of verse 11. We are to act positively on behalf of others as a reason response to a recognition of God's generosity and goodness towards us. Here I'm reminded of Jesus' story in Matthew 18 about the king who forgave his servant's entire debt, an amount he was unable to repay. Jesus started off his story with these words, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Jesus tells us right off the top, that he is about to share a kingdom principle with those who are his. And he does so by first introducing the subject who asks and the object who deserves all, the king. Our attention and focus is to first be placed on him. It is he who we're called to emulate. And when we lose sight of that fact, we run the very real risk of acting like the servant who was forgiven. You might remember that the king forgave the servant of a complete debt that he would not have been able to pay in his entire uh, lifetime. And that's symbolic of God forgiving us for our sins. 
which we would never, ever be able to accomplish on our own. And so this servant should have went out with his eyes reflecting on what the king had done, continuously holding the king before his mind and his heart and everything else. And he should have went out that way, and because of that, he should have served other people with a heart of great gratitude because of what God, because of what the king in this instance, which is symbolic of God, had done for him. But if you remember, he ran out, and he went up to a servant who owed him a little bit of money. If I owe you a little bit of money, just keep in mind what I'm saying here, okay? So he went out, and he, the servant owed him a little bit of money, and he grabbed the servant around his neck, and he said, hey, give me that which you owe and give it to me right now. And that pastor tells us that the servant, the other servant saw it, and they went back and they spoke to that king. Uh, you know that story. If you don't know it, go back and look at Matthew 18. The, the tenor of it is that we should always be forgiven others. But the point that you're seeing here, or the point that I'm trying to make with that, is to say that we are to keep our eyes on the grace of God as we deal with others. We are to keep our eyes on what God has done for us, and that is how we're supposed to engage others, not by who they are, what they are, but who God is and what God is doing in and through us for his glory. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acted on our behalf while we were yet sinners, hostile to the things of God and wanting nothing to do with him. God acted in perfect love, knowing there was absolutely no way. Think about that. There was no way we would have been able to perfectly give him anything back in return. Still cannot, but still yet he acts in the way he does with us on a continual basis. That's why we continue to say his mercies are renewed each and every day. Are our mercies renewed towards our neighbors each and every day? So as it relates to our text, what am I saying here? This verse calls us to be to a selfless love that does not look for anything in return. It might seem to be saying, especially if you're looking at it through the lens of MMI, me, myself, and I, that we should do positive things so that we can be recipients of positive things. It seems like it might be saying that, but that's not what's going on here. We are to serve, not with an eye on being served, but solely for the sake of the one being served. We serve others solely for the fact that we are serving them, and that is how God is glorified. Think about that for a second. You're serving someone who's able to do anything in return for you. You cannot repay, they can't repay you. They can't help you, nothing, and you're let, yet you're helping them. Isn't that glorifying God more than if you're expecting that person to give you something and they give you a million dollars, ten dollars, whatever the case may be? Which one glorifies God more? Which one reflects the heart of God as we engage, as he engages us? We serve in the way we would like to be served. Whether or not we receive any benefit in return, the account of the Good Samaritan is the perfect example of this. And who told that story? The same one that's giving us this verse right now, Jesus. The same one who is exhorting us to be the same here. In fact, this verse is no less, brothers and sisters, than a paraphrase of the second great commandment. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Unless we forget that was the exact context that caused Jesus to share his Good Samaritan story an inquiry concerning who is or is not my neighbor. 
And so, you know, when I think through this and I think about this, even when that good Samaritan was helping that man, that man's probably wary about what he, why he was being helped. What does this guy want from me? Is he helping me so he's going to hurt me later? Is he trying to take me? He could have been thinking all kinds of things because it was just not natural for this person to be helping him. But here he was helping. And so Jesus wants us to be the same. We are to help in unnatural ways because it reflects a supernatural power that is working in and through us for God's glory. In our text, the word them, as you look at the, your text, the, the verse, is to be understood as our neighbor. And we know, according to Jesus, our neighbor is anyone who we come across in our sphere of influence, in the environment in which we live. It is every and any single person we come across during our ambassadorial duties here on earth. So, brothers and sisters, I wonder if we have any idea. Do you have any idea how revolutionary this exhortation is? Slavery in the United States would not have existed in the form and the nature it did if this was the operative force or rule that people were guided by. Sadly, this is one of the biggest issues or gripes that black Christians have against white Christians even now. Listen, I've been called here for us to sort of move towards being multicultural. And, and so this, what I'm saying now is something that I have to say. It's not bad or negative, but I do have to speak in these terms because of, it's part of my calling. And so now you have folks walking around today, and because uh, certain, because whites did not, in the church, did not embrace blacks in the church the way they should have in this particular manner, blacks are now walking off and adopting all sorts of ideologies, again, that are secular in their orientation, rather than operating in the scriptures that give us everything we need for faith and practice. And so we still have this divide. I hate to even say white and black because those are societally constructs. Those are societal constructs. We're all one race. We're all called to love our neighbors. And so this thing, yes, we're different ethnicities and that, is, that glorifies God in the fact that we're different ethnicities, but this black-white thing is not something that should be there, but it is what we have at this particular point. So the question becomes, how do we love our neighbors? When I first came here, and I came and I interviewed here, it was a room full of white people, right? And then I went to the North Park Mall, and I was like, man, what happened? The whole place was black. And then I went to the, the movie theater, and I was like, man, maybe it's because the light, but everyone in here is black. <laughs> You know, so it turned out that all our neighbors all around us, you know, a large majority are African-Americans. And so how do we love our neighbors? And it's kind of interesting because at this particular point, some of the people that are our neighbors hate us without knowing us. You hear me? Hate us without knowing us. I know for a fact that there are people in this church that will give me the skin off their back. I don't want to keep it, but I'm just saying you know, and I've had conversations with other people um, that are, you know, family members and others and stuff like that. 
And if you talk to them, you would think that the people that I'm talking about in favorable manners, like the way I'm saying right now, are Satan incarnate. You know? And then the, the, you have media sources that are literally out there and they are benefiting from separating us in the manner that we're being separated. And so it is contingent upon those that are in the body of Christ. It is contingent upon us who have God's spirit to rise above that sort of stuff, to rise above it and to love our neighbors and to do unto them as we would have done unto us. The interesting thing here I would say to you is this, how do you do that? Because if you go in some communities, you say, hey, let me do this for you. In some cases, they won't want that done for them. So you know what that means? We have to become engaged relationally. Not just let me do this for you, but let me learn how to grow with you as a community. We have to reach out to others because that's what we would want done to us. We're all different people. We all have different ideations. We all have different preferences. And so this thing about placing everyone as a collective, black people, white people. Listen, you know why that doesn't hit me like that? Grew up in the Virgin Islands, lived in New York, lived in Washington, D.C., lived overseas. In every place that I've been, black culture was different. So when you try to place blacks or whites for that matter, or anyone in a collective, you're doing a disservice to those people. Even within ethnicities, there's different cultures. And the only way you will get to engage those cultures and love those cultures is to do exactly the word that I just said just now. Engage them. Know them. Love them. Listen to them. That is how I would argue that we would have to do unto others as we want done unto us. We want people to hear us. We want people to listen to our hearts, and we want people to engage us where we are. Now, here's where I would say be careful. Don't engage people in ways that they want to be engaged if it's unscriptural. Do not engage people in ways that, let me say that again, in ways that are unscriptural. If a person wants you to eternally see them as an oppressor and you as the oppressed, or they as the oppressed rather, and you as the oppressor, and that is the way it is, and you're called to penance for the rest of your relationship with that person, that is not a godly relationship. We speak the truth and love to those sorts of things. Okay? But let me tell you again, the type of vitriol that some blacks have towards whites today would not have existed. Human trafficking, domestic abuse, I could go on and on and on and on. None of these things would have existed. You know, if I just go back for a quick second and, and, and mention, because I was talking about don't engage people in falsehood. Let me give you an example of what I was talking about. If you remember the Michael Brown situation in Ferguson and this whole narrative about hands up, don't shoot. To this day, there are still people that are saying that that's what happened. So do we now engage a person in that lie for the sake of trying to identify, for the sake of trying to empathize? The answer is no. You already heard me say, as a person with eight years of investigative experience, and let me just say, and not bragging, I'm just saying, 
a person who was commended over and over and over again, a person who uh, gave people lie detector exams and all that sort of stuff, working for the Margate Police Department, I can tell you, and I, and I say it again, that the Attorney General for the Minneapolis Attorney General's office came back and said that there is no evidence that what happened to George, George Floyd was motivated, was racially motivated. But yet we have $2 billion worth of damage that was done across the United States. Now I remember when I talked about that, when we had our race relations Q&A, and I said, you know what? There are people that are out there hurting rightfully because there is racism, and we cannot at this particular point say that wasn't racially motivated. No, what we have to do is meet people where they are. But you don't just meet people where they are and continue to be there in a lie. And so when you ask the question, how do I do unto others as I want done to them, uh, myself? The question becomes, do I want people to lie to me when something is not true? Or do I want them to meet me where I am? Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman, they made it seem again like it was law enforcement against a black man, a white man against a black man. But Zimmerman was a Hispanic man. And I, when I sat in my CVSA class, that is the class to train you how to do a computer voice stress analyzer. That's the lie detection machine that I use. I saw Trayvon, I mean, um, Zimmerman's, George Zimmerman's lie detector exam. The instructor showed it to us and said, guess who this is? First tell me if you see any, uh, any lie in here. If you detect any lies here, any deception. And the entire class agreed that there was no deception on the chart that was taken the very night that it happened. But yet here we are saying that it is a given fact there was an act of racism, that it was police brutality, and all of that sort of stuff. And so when we engage these kind of discourses, there's plenty of examples where racism exists. There are plenty of examples where things are not right. There are plenty of examples where we have to do better on both sides. But we have to operate in the truth when we do that. And so if I want people to treat me from a, from a place of truth, that I am also going to treat others from a place of truth, and the consequences are just going to have to lay where they are. But all these things, human trafficking, domestic abuse, child abuse, all the stuff that I'm talking about, none of this stuff would have been here if we were to do exactly what Jesus is calling us to here in this text. It would literally be heaven on earth, a pre-fall scenario. That, however, is not where we are. Instead, we, are, to, we are, are light in a world of darkness. We are light in a world of darkness, salt in a world of spoiled flesh, called to achieve that which cannot be achieved in the natural. But only in the manner we see here in our text, which brings me to my closing question, why is it achieved in this prescribed manner? Jesus in this text tells us to do unto others as we had done unto ourselves, right? Why would it be achieved in this manner? The answer is a spirit-filled, why we call it this spirit-filled ethic as a means to be successful in seeking human flourishing and the limited peace available to us here on earth. It's because it's connected to God's law. 
the principles that he provided in his special revelation to, to us. It is his word, the Bible. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, it says in Psalm 119, 105. Look what Jesus says. For this is the law and the prophets. Again, he points to the fact that this verse is an embodiment of the second great commandment. Listen, take note of this. In the absence of love, there is law. Remember, there was a time when people could leave the doors of their home open and no one would enter with the intention of stealing from them or destroying their property. When that changed, laws had to be introduced that dealt with breaking and entering. If you were to check the amount of laws this country had in its inception and, 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 and against the amount that it has now, Granted, we have to, to give place for stuff like new technology and advances, and, and so now we have to deal with the theft of, of electronic stuff and all that other stuff. So granted, but per capita, if you were to look at it, you would see that as a nation increases in ungodliness, as a nation increases in selfishness, in MMI, in its MMI condition, as it increases like that, you have to introduce more and more law. And then you see things like hate crime law. I thought every crime was selfish and hateful. So you see all these things are introduced like that. It's factual to state that all crime is an act of hate and not love. But now we have these laws again. It's a verified fact that our culture, brothers and sisters, has largely abandoned a Judeo-Christian ethic and wants no part of God in the marketplace of ideas. Understanding that fact should bring us to the conclusion that what we see here in our text will not be something that we should hope to expect or hope to see from the general populace in the United States. We started out by talking that to follow through with this particular verse, it has to be done supernaturally. And so we should not hope to see this sort of behavior from everyone. But my goodness, we are the ones that have God's spirit. We are the ones that are supposed to demonstrate it and exhibit it. With God's enablement, it should characterize those of us who are called by his name. As one pastor aptly stated, only God's children can have right relations with others because they possess the motivation and the resources to refrain from self-righteously condemning others and to love in an utterly selfless way. Some of the things that I said tonight might have jarred you one way or the other. You might be out there saying, man, how is he attacking black people? I'm not attacking black people. In case you ain't noticed, I'm black. <laughs> Was raised by a wonderful black woman who treated me absolutely well. I've been treated horribly by blacks, and I've been treated horribly by whites. I've been treated awesomely by whites, and I've been treated awesomely by blacks. The way I see it in the life that I live, it is not skin. It has always been sin. Nevertheless, we have to recognize the world that we live in, and we have to operate in that grid. But if what this man said is true, and I believe it, it is incumbent upon us to do that which others cannot 
for the sake and glory of our Lord, our Lord who has called us to demonstrate his character and love and love to those who in our sphere of influence. We affect those who are in our sphere of influence. We cannot affect the entire world. You know, one of the things that comes out of this particular text is that old mantra of to be silenced is to do violence. I don't know if you realize that, but here, the opposite of not doing harm is to seek good. And so some have taken that to mean that if you are silent, then you're being violent. But I would say to you, you are called to infect your sphere of influence. You have the gifts that you have, and you have to operate in that. And if you are not called to be a loudmouth like me, if you're not called to be here or there, but you're called to be there, then you focus on what God, how he has blessed you, how he has gifted you, and you operate in that, and you will be doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Don't let anyone put a guilt trip on you to do things outside of how God has called you. Having said that, challenge yourself to see if you are absolutely doing what you would have others done or do to you. Let's consider this, these things, and ask the Lord to drive it home in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Uh, we absolutely acknowledge that there is no way we can fulfill uh, what our Lord is calling us to here unless you enable us by the power of your spirit. And so we ask that you would grace us so that we would indeed be able to do unto others as we would have them do to us. Not so that we could seek things in return, but for the sake of your glory, for the sake of the calling to which you've called us, for the sake of demonstrating the gospel to a lost and dying world, for the sake of being used as your instrument for your glory. So would you grab hold of us as this church, this session, has endeavored to move towards being multi-ethnic, multicultural? Would you teach us what that looks like? Would you bless us, our efforts in moving in that direction? Would you cause us to do so in a manner that would glorify you, number one, and number two, in a manner that everyone would have to say, look at what God has done for his glory. Father, we lift these things up to you this evening. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.